Hello everyone, welcome to episode uh, number six, uh, training chats with uh, Mladen and Israel and I'm really happy uh, to announce our first guest, uh, Mike Tusher. Um, I've been following Mike since I think 2007 or 2008 when he published the, the book um, mm-hmm. on react- reactive strength training. Uh, so I don't know if you are familiar with Mike, but he's, I would say, the first g- guy who created a, I would say, a applied framework of using RP uh, in, in prescribing uh, strength training. So before him, there was a lot of talk about using subjective stuff, you know, cybernetic periodization and all this stuff. But I, I, I do believe that Mike was the first one to create a system and uh, successfully implement it. So without further ado, hi, Mike. Thanks, thanks a lot for, uh, for joining us today. And, you know, how are you, buddy, by the way? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. I'm glad that we could finally uh, connect and, and have a conversation. So I'm looking forward to chatting with you guys. That's great to have you here, Mike. So um, I have two major things I want to talk with Mike um, tonight, although we will let the things emerge as we as we go. Um, so um, Let's 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 start with uh, emerging strategies right off the bat. So, uh, can you give a quick um, introduction to the listeners? What are the emerging strategies, and how the you know how did you came up with uh, with the name, and and you know like how did you stumble about on on this problem? Well, stumble on it is is absolutely the right description. I think uh, so. I know that you're familiar with a. Uh, uh, a writer in this space, uh, Matt Perryman, uh, from, you know, several years ago. Uh, but I find that many, many people are not familiar with him, but, uh, he wrote about strength training. Uh, he competed, dabbled in powerlifting a little bit, but I think mostly he was a philosopher, you know, like his interest was in philosophy. So, uh, his ability to think through problems rigorously was, uh, well-developed. Uh, and he wrote quite a lot and, uh, he wrote a book, uh, called squat every day. And that's one of the books that was, it's actually a pretty big influence on me. Not, not about the program itself, but in the way that he thinks about training problems, you know? And one of the things that came out of that book for me was, uh, this criticism of top down planning models, um, like a criticism of, it really comes back to a criticism of periodization planning as we know it, you know, and, and everybody has these different definitions for periodization and depending on how you define it, you know, periodization itself isn't the problem. The problem seems to be just the, the top down planning approach. You know, we start with the quadrennial or the annual plan or whatever, and we gradually subdivide that into smaller and smaller sections until you know, we get down to the training session and that's how today's training fits into the long-term picture of things. Like, it sounds great, but when you really start to think about it, there are some significant problems with it. Um, and I was reading reading his work and kind of coming to face some of these issues and I thought, okay, well, that's great. If there are problems with the top-down planning approach, what would a bottom-up approach look like? And that's more or less where I got stuck for a couple of years, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, a bottom up approach would be cool, but how would you do that? And I remember very clearly 
I was living in Colorado at the time, and I was driving to the airport uh, to pick up my brother who was coming to visit. And I was listening to this podcast, um, and Derek Evely was talking about uh, his time uh, coaching under Dr. Anatoly Bondarchuk, uh, the famous Soviet throws coach, uh, when he moved to Canada and learning the Bondarchuk system, what that looked like as it was applied to hammer throwers, shot putters, uh, the people that they were working with there. And as I'm listening to him describe it, I'm thinking, holy shit, that's what a bottom-up approach would look like. That's how you would do it, you know? And, and I mean, that's the most excited I've been about a training idea in, you know, decades probably, <laughs> you know. I was just super excited because, like, this is a problem that I've been thinking about for a long time, and and there it is, you know. So from there, I began the process of, of saying, okay, how can I translate that from throwing to powerlifting? Uh, and, yeah, just kind of translating the ideas over, you know. And it, it wasn't, it, I don't, at least I don't think it was uh, terribly complicated. And, and the reason I came up with the, the nomenclature of emerging strategies is because that's basically what you're trying to do. Uh, you're trying to let the long-term plan emerge from the short-term plan. You're trying to use a bottom-up planning approach. First, we're going to start with the training session and then build on build on that uh, to the microcycle. And the training block is going to emerge from those things. And then once we figure out what the ideal training block is, and, and I think theoretically you can still go in the direction of developing an annual plan. I don't think from a practical standpoint, you ever really get there because the, the athlete changes in the, in the time it takes for you to discover enough about the athlete to start building uh, a longer and longer term plan, the athlete changes, you know? And uh, so you need to constantly go back to revisiting the base, you know? And so uh, from a practical standpoint, you probably don't ever really get to uh, like, annual plans and things like that, but uh, you're, you're going in that direction. You're letting those uh, plans emerge as the athlete shows you more and more about how they respond to training. Yeah, I, um, I completely understand the, the concept. <laughs> and I think both myself and Israel came to the same conclusions from, I would say, different perspective. Mine was working in team sports, and I saw that uh, having that long pre-plan, I would say, pre-planning in advance, having like an annual plan. And I also call it top-down, like you, you start with a big picture and then go into smaller details. Wasn't really working. And, you know, uh, but mostly from, log I would say there are two things involved here. One is like biological uncertainty, you know, in, in, in inter, uh, I would say in individual variation to training. You never know how someone's going to react. And in my case, there were more logistical issues uh, in, in terms of, you know, athletes, missing the session or being borrowed to another club or and you know losing a game changing a coach but you know i ended up to a i would say a similar um similar conclusion so i'll i'll i would say i'll continue this uh question and i'm um i'm aware uh, about the derek Evely and bondachuk and they've been really influential on on some of my uh thought processes but i would say that the main problem I have as a SNC working in team sports is that hammer throwing is really objective. It's like a one thing you, you can measure. Yeah. 
and then you can you can observe what's happening with the performance over time see certain uh, patterns emerging and so forth so like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna expand the discussion to team sports i'm gonna try to stick to um, powerlifting or strength sports in, in this particular talk so um, to to implement this type of system you and you mentioned it multiple times in in your talks you do need to monitor things a lot like you do need to monitor yeah. the training loads the results and everything so uh, with the hammer throwing and you know shot put and discus you can you know easily measure and it's every effort is maximal right but how do you say how do you get that information in 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 powerlifting how do you measure performance oh uh, i i've been benchmarking uh, the performance measures off of an estimated 1RM. So because we have an emphasis on RPE-based training, uh, you know, I can have an athlete, you know, do any particular set uh, as long as it's, you know, not ridiculously easy. You know, if it's a, a working set, let's say, they rate the RPE and we get a good idea of what their uh, estimated 1RM is. You know, uh, now that's helped by the fact that uh, in this system, uh, we you, we typically use a flat-loaded approach. So what I mean is if we're going to do squats for sets of five, then we're going to be doing squats for sets of five for the entire block. You know, it doesn't change. The, the, the intensity doesn't wave. The volume doesn't wave. It's flat-loaded. You know, so that helps. Um, now, if they, since we're using RPE, the RPE allows the the weight on the bar to fluctuate so that we get, you know, as close as possible to the same degree of difficulty for for all the sets that they do. Um, and then the feedback that RPE gives us lets us know uh, what their performance is like. You know, so let's say, you know, you're having somebody squat sets of five and, you know, this week they did uh, 200 kilos for five uh, and it was a nine RPE. And then next week they do 200 kilos again, uh, but it's a 8.5 RPE, you know. OK, so we we know that they got stronger or maybe they did uh, 202.5 uh, for five reps at a nine RPE. So. You know, the reps and the RPE are the same, but the weight's a little bit heavier. We know that they got stronger. So it's kind of both of those things together. Uh, we use the estimated 1RM, you know, but that's uh, just kind of a, a way to uh, normalize the data point. You know, uh, we have three things all interacting together. We have the weight on the bar, the reps that they did, and the RPE is all giving us, you know, uh, an indicator of how strong they are on that day, you know, and we're just trying to translate it so that it's comparable across, uh, you know, fluctuations to those variables. Okay. Is that, is that uh, prediction based on a generalized, say, Epley's formula or table, or you do create a, I would say, pers personalized uh, max reps uh, table, percentage max reps table? We start with just kind of a, a generalized table. Um, the thinking is that even if it's not perfectly accurate, what we're looking for is trends anyway. Uh, but if there's some indication that eh, that's probably not accurate enough, then we'll build a custom, uh, a custom table for them. 
what about like nowadays it's i would say it's trendy to use uh velocity like velocity based training like yeah. like have you tried implementing that stuff uh for example if a given set let, let's say you're doing a uh say a bench press with 150 kilos across microcycles and mm-hmm. you measure the first first rep and you see like increase in velocity or something like that you know did you did you try to experiment with that approach so i haven't used it with a lot of my athletes simply because most of my athletes don't have access um but I, i've used velocity myself since i think like 2009 uh, i've used it in, in my own training um and the way i tend to use it is kind of an rpe validation mm-hmm. um like i have my subjective rating uh, but then i'm also checking the velocity and it, generally there's an agreement there uh but if there's not you know that's that's useful information as well um but i tend to uh like in this type of emerging approach i would still want to fluctuate the load uh so that it it's creating a, a consistent effort so my my thinking so far that maybe i should back up a little bit so the reason that you would want a consistent stimulus uh that's why you flat load the training block and you repeat the same microcycle over and over again uh until you get to a peak condition um the reason you would do that is so that you get better information uh you reduce the noise uh so that you can more clearly see the signal uh from you, you can clear, more clearly see the signal of the athlete response yeah that, so yeah go ahead go ahead So what I what I'm trying to what I'm thinking about when I'm developing the the development cycle is how can I give them that same stimulus over and over again you know um and so far what I've what I've done is it's the same exercises same sets same reps and I want the the load to vary so that it's the same effort So like if you think about it from a like a shot put perspective they just throw as hard as they can you know and it goes as far as it'll go you know uh it's something like that you know i mean and i guess you could do the same thing like uh just use 150 kilos and push it as hard as you can right um i, I honestly i just haven't tried that approach um um Mike, I actually something that um ever since we started speaking with you now i wondered about is what do you do to begin with? I mean, the program has to emerge after you get some feedback from yeah. the athlete. And I'd also like to hear about how you how you broke it down into stages. I mean, you let the program emerge based on some types of information. I'd like to hear more about that type of information that you're trying to collect with a bottom-up approach. But also before that, perhaps you can touch about what, what you do to begin with uh, before you get to know the athletes. What type of approach do you use with that? That's a great question. And honestly, it's something that I think a lot of people wonder when they start hearing about this it's a you basically just take your best guess you know and and that sounds decidedly unscientific I know but but that's uh I think just kind of how it is like you have to start somewhere mm-hmm. and usually in the beginning of those relationships you don't know very much so you you take your best guess and to me that's where things like exercise science come into play because 
that tells you something about average responses. Uh, that's where uh, things like uh, you know your own coaching intuition come into play. Um, I've also done a. I wouldn't call them studies. I would just say maybe investigations on some other factors like uh, uh, personality is one of them. Uh, and uh, an 80% rep test is another one uh, to try to parse out some of these factors that may influence the individual response. You know, And so if you can gather some information about that, then that'll give you a little bit better idea of, of where to start. You know, uh, if the athlete has a decent training log, then that's useful too. But uh, most athletes don't, you know? Um, yeah. So you kind of take your best, you know, your best guess, use your best judgment and just find a place to start. And then from there, you know, you go, okay, well that, that worked or that didn't work. Let me try this other thing in this other direction. Oh, that was worse. Maybe I'll go the other way, you know, and you, you, walk it in you know right right yeah i have a i have another another one uh, yeah so yeah i do i do kind of agree with what you're trying to uh to do it's like a it's like rct is a randomized controlled trial on a single subject uh <laughs> pretty much <laughs> and uh you need you the, the problem is i would say the problem would be and you mentioned in a video and I'll, i'm gonna post the video in the, in the comments underneath so you do need to you do need to stay put on a given uh, training program for you know maybe four to eight weeks or whatever to kind of see what what's happening with with the performance. But uh, I would say that's also like depends how much time you have. What what happens if you are wrong? Like what what happens like you know this doesn't work as you want it to work or you know how do you deal with? And, and a lot of coaches ask me like. Can I can uh, it's an English <laughs> English language problem? Like what what could have I done better to get better results? Like like th- this is this seems to be working, but maybe I could have done something different to get uh, better results. I mean, I understand the ap- approach. You know, you 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 stick to a certain uh, flat loading, uh, and then you see you know what. Let let's see how you know this is gonna affect the performance. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, an- yeah. A- another, and I would say another uh, unknown in the equation is the. Uh, l- let's say you figure out that certain person uh, responds, you know, I would say nicely to uh, uh, say uh, squatting tw- twice a week and maybe doing five sets of five, you know, at maybe yeah. eight eight RP. But then, you, then you conclude, okay, this is a program that that seems to be good enough for for this particular individual. Uh, the next question is like you know what about the other versions that you don't have time to try and also i would say even more important is like the en- environmental stuff or stress maybe you know in in that given time someone get had a really nice uh, yeah. you know period in life or maybe he was like like yourself moving getting kids yeah. and all this stuff like how do you implement that well the let's see so as far as like the life circumstances, I think that you can account for those things just by having a relationship with the athlete. You know, they tell you that something is something unusual is going on in, in life. And uh, if that 
also coincides with a, a an unexpected result, then you know certainly make note of it, and you may not weight that data point quite as heavily, you know, uh, or at least I, that's how I would treat it. Um, as far as what, how do you know if something could have gone better? So I've I've been kind of in the article I posted this week. Uh, I touched on the epistemological problem of of uh, training, really, and and how this bottom up approach tries to solve that problem. And you know, I, every tool has its strengths and weaknesses. And for a long time, it bothered me that I didn't really, or I, at least I felt like I didn't know what the weakness of this approach was. Uh, because it's, you know, I'm thinking, well, it's there. And if I don't know what it is, then that just means I'm blind to it. So I have to figure that out, you know. And so I, I thought about it for a long time. And I think the weakness of the approach is just an, an epistemic weakness in general. There's just a limit to how much we can know about an athlete, right? So think of it like this. You're in a cave in the dark, and you're trying to find your way through the cave, right? And it's made even worse because all the rocks move around from time to time, you know? So you're in a cave in the dark. You're a coach trying to find your way through this cave in the dark. You're trying to find the best athlete response, right? So you can think of it like groping around in the dark, trying to find find your way through the cave. That's what I... Th- in my opinion, a lot of us are doing at any given time. Um, and then the rocks move around from time to time. It's that the athlete that you've got in this training block is not exactly the same athlete that you had in the last training block. You know, you did some training during that time and hopefully that training had some kind of a result. You know, if nothing else, it added some wear and tear to them. You know, uh, maybe they're not completely different from one block to the next, but they're certainly going to be significantly different from one year to the next. You know, so that's what I mean by the rocks are moving around from time to time. So to me, this bottom up approach, it doesn't illuminate the whole cave. It can't. There's no way for it to do that. It's just giving you a, a little tiny pen light. You know, it's enough that you can illuminate the area around you. There's still lots of cave that you can't see. And I don't know that you're able, I don't think we'll ever be able to see it just because it's, I, I don't know how we could know it anyway. You know, how could we know? what an athlete will respond to in five years. Like, uh, you know, I think that's beyond our grasp, you know? So I think finding the answer is something that we just kind of have to get comfortable not having, you know? Um, But having a, a small pin light that illuminates that area around you is better than having no light at all. You know, yeah, yeah, or think, just a yeah. light that keeps pointing to one direction if it's a top-down approach. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I suppose you could have kind of a, a, a false light. You know, yeah. um, you know, if you say you really truly subscribe to a, a, 
uh, a linear periodization model for powerlifting, you know, like, like most powerlifters do. Uh, I've come across lifters who just don't respond well to that when we get into high intensity, you know? So if they're running a, a classic linear periodization approach, uh, whenever they they get close to a meet, they're doing the things that don't work, you know, at, at best they don't work. And, uh, more often it seems like, uh, they start to feel bad and, and get injured, uh, from, from the high intensity work. And I've actually had a lot more success with those people by using like a reverse periodization approach where they're, they're actually going to low intensities as they get closer to the meet and they perform better because, Hey, that's actually training that makes them stronger to begin with. You know, um, now why is that? I, I mean, Hey, that's a very interesting question, but we have to start with the phenomenon itself before we can answer why, you know? Uh, so yeah. And, and to them, that's very important, you know? So, uh, for that particular cave, you know, if you subscribe to, you know, a linear periodization approach, that's kind of walking in the wrong direction, you know? Yeah. I think we are really, really similar. I, I, I would say even same in, in terms of understanding things from a philosophical uh, perspective. And I, I think myself, and Israel both came to a conclusion that, you know, training is decision-making in uncertainty. So what, what's the best thing I can do with limited or not, not fully available information like logistics uh, and, yeah. and biological, you know, biological response and, and so forth. But uh, yeah, the, definitely, I would say it's really close to, to what I do believe nowadays uh, so I would say w one of my solutions to the puzzle of, of you know, decision-making in uncertainty is to, I, I got it from a software industry. So I got it, uh, uh, you know, people make software and you do need to put it on a market and you never know how people going to respond to it. You do need to invest time and money and so forth. So it comes back to the idea like, how, how, what should I do to kind of test the product, see if it's, if it's worthwhile? Um, without wasting time and money. So they developed this concept of the minim minimum viable program or minimum viable product. So, and nowadays my idea is like you, you do, you, you start with, a, I would say the best practice that, that you mentioned before or something that's been validated. Let's call it an yeah. evidence-based approach. Yeah. And then you start with something, uh, you, you, you deploy it and see how people respond and then iterate. Just, you know, respond, you know, like, change as you as you go rather than believing that things will will evolve as you wish but uh, i would say my question would be so um uh, i think uh, uh christian tibadu also uh identified few i would say archetypes of how people respond to training so you might have uh, guys who are uh you know they they like variability in training maybe someone prefer to do high intensity low volume or someone you know might prefer to do uh, or is, like prefer is a tricky word. Uh, they yeah. might respond to that type of workout. Um, so once you identify certain st stereotype or certain archetype with, with one athlete, or in your case, once you identify certain performance curves, how stable are they across long term? So I, 
they are reasonably stable. They're stable enough to be useful. Mm-hmm. Um, when I found something that an athlete responds to, it seems to be stable enough to use. And the stability factor seems to vary from, from athlete to athlete as well. I have one athlete, a, a Canadian lifter, uh, who seems to just be extremely stable in that way. You know, you we found some things that work and they just can keep working. And that's great. <laughs> you know, that gives us plenty of time to find new things that will work because eventually everything stops. Um but then other people seem to uh, adapt to them more quickly. And it seems like the more frequently we, we apply a certain stimulus, the quicker we exhaust that stimulus. Uh, so it becomes kind of a strategic, a strategic game in some way. Like you, you know, you find, you know, this certain intervention that seems to work well. Um, so how often do you go to it, you know, knowing the, this is what's coming up for the athlete, you know, they have to perform at this competition, but this other one is relatively minor. And then, you know, there's the world championship after that, or, you know, whatever the landscape is, you know, you have to decide, uh, when are you going to employ these, these methods so that you can maximize the result, you know, in the, in the meantime, you're continuing to search for, uh, you know, new techniques, you know, I, I always kind of thought if you could find, you know, three different programs, uh, that got you a really good response from an athlete that you could just kind of rotate between those three, uh, and, and have a really great year, which is probably true, but finding those three that get you a consistent and, and, uh, uh, really good response is a lot easier said than done. It takes a long time to, to figure that part out. So Mike, in, in, in relation to that, I'm just wondering over the years, what types of feedback from the athletes have you found to be the most insightful and relevant to uh, modify the program as it emerges? So I'm sure you've, you try to pick up as many signals as you can, whether they're personality or their RPEs or anything else. I just wondered how has that evolved over years and what do you emphasize the most right now as cues for you to modify or change your program? The estimated one at max is, is probably the biggest one. Uh, from that, we can look at a couple different things, things like, uh, uh, it's just a metric I've been calling gain rate. Just, uh, you know, the, the progress, uh, like think of it like progress per week, I guess, or, or something, something like progress per unit of time. Uh, so that we can compare a, a six week cycle to a four week cycle, you know, things like that. But, uh, those are probably, that's probably the main metric that I look at. We also from there keep other metrics, uh, that serve more of a diagnostic purpose. Uh, so while the estimated one RM is is a big driver in terms of how long do we continue doing a training cycle, which training cycles are more, most effective, you know, if you find that a training cycle is very effective or not very effective, uh, and you want to know why, then there's other metrics that come into play. Um, one, uh, we we have a, a system that we call Track that's basically an athlete monitoring system. 
where we attempt to quantify their uh, fatigue and recovery. Um, we really are emphasizing at this point, like in the beginning, there was a, a heart rate portion and things like that. But uh, these days, we're really emphasizing the uh, uh, subjective questionnaire. And I feel like that tells us pretty much everything we need to know um, from like a recovery standpoint. And uh, probably the other big one, you know, aside from, you know, kind of the more uh, standard ones, I guess, standard metrics. Um, I like to look at, uh, it's a metric I call stress index. The idea is that volume, I don't think, is a a great quantifier of how difficult a a session is. It doesn't tell you much about uh, the recovery cost of of that training session. Um, So I came up with a, a metric I've been calling stress index that attempts to do that a little bit better. Um, the idea is that training stress comes from two places. It comes from the volume of work that you do, and it comes from the psychological arousal that you have when you do it. Um, I don't think intensity is that big of a deal because you can do high intensity work, uh, psyched up and it's very stressful, or you can do high intensity work relaxed and it's not as stressful. Um, so I don't think it's the intensity itself. I think it's the psych up that you bring to it. Um, and I look at something like RPE as a rough proxy for that. Uh, think the idea is that if you're approaching a set that you know is going to be difficult, you're going to get more psyched up for it, whether you mean to or not. Um, you know, you're approaching a, a set that's going to be a 10 RPE. It's going to hurt a little bit. You know, you're going to have more anxiety as you approach it. Um, and then some people are going to try to cover that up with anger and, you know, the rest of the, the rest of the thing. Right. Whereas if you're approaching a set, that's going to be a six RPE, even if you're trying to, to, you know, take it as seriously as you can, you know, in your mind, this is going to be easy, you know? Right. So it's, it's just a different headspace, you know? So it's not a perfect metric, but I think it gives you a rough approximation. Um, it's, it's something like one set at each given RPE, uh, gives you X amount of, of stress index points. And then you sum, uh, you sum those, however, you know, you see fit if you want to look at, upper body stress index or lower body stress index and so on. Um, you know, if you get a stress index of about 20, you know, whether that's high intensity or low intensity, it's going to present roughly the same amount of difficulty. So another way to think of it is stress index is, is something like the number of hard sets that you're doing. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. Uh, yeah, that makes sense that, uh, that, uh, that's an interesting way to to uh, uh, monitor. Um, so I'm trying to reconcile two two things, and if you can clarify it a, a bit, I'm not sure about the listeners, but it it, it kind of clashes in my in my head. So so on one way, you want to have a stable stimuli to to estimate, uh, I would say, the performance curves and see how long it takes for someone to to reach a peak and so forth. But the first, I would say, first part of this question is like, isn't that uh, really context dependent on the on the training uh, training program? For example, the amount of uh, 
specialized exercises, assistant exercises, and so forth. And second, with with the emerging strategies, you do need to have like a exploratory component in training. Like you wanna try different things. Again, you start with a I would say minimum viable program or or you know the mm-hmm. best practice or you're in, in in the first intuition, and then you. I would say one aspect is you you do need to stick to it for some time without changing it. But then on the opposite side, you do need to explore and, you know, see, uh, you know, other, I would say, other stuff. And then, you know, you might, over time, you, you might emerge multiple strategies, as you mentioned before, that are suitable for that given individual. So how do you reconcile, uh, I would say, having a stable stimuli with exploration? So we, we definitely, or I definitely, um, skipped over some of the nuts and bolts of how this is going to work. And, and I guess I'm, uh, I guess maybe, I don't know if that's a mistake or not, but, um, if you want to cover some of the nuts and bolts, uh, there's the, you mentioned linking to the, the talk that I did and, and that probably does a, a better job of, of, going over those types of things just because it's prepared. (laughs) But, uh, to answer your question though, um, it's, um, when you, when you start a development cycle, you want to carry it out to a peak condition. Uh, basically you want to continue repeating that stimulus until you've progressed as far as you can progress with that stimulus. Now, the the amount of time that that tends to be is relatively stable unless you start changing training variables pretty dramatically. Um, you know, if the stress index is the same, the frequency is generally the same, uh, then you're going to get a, a, a pretty consistent result. So say it takes me, you know, it, well, I, I can tell you it takes me about six microcycles, six or seven microcycles to see a peak condition. So regardless of those microcycles, if I'm doing two microcycles a week or I'm doing one a week or, or whatever, it's going to take me six or seven. Uh, and that's where I'm going to see my peak condition. Um, so you can change the frequency that those microcycles occur uh, and that'll change your timing a little bit. But once you start a development cycle, it's ideal to carry it out to the end because that's really where you get the complete information on, on the athlete response. Um, so what I typically do is, you know, I'm, I'm talking to the athlete. I, the first, the first block that we do is, is establishing that time to peak. And then in subsequent blocks, we're looking at what competitions do we have coming up? Do we have time, you know, oh, the, we have three development cycles between now and the next competition. So the next, the first one is almost certainly going to be an exploratory block. You know, uh, we have time. Now the second one, you know, we'll see how that first exploratory block went. If it was great, then we may do another exploratory block. If it wasn't, and we're thinking, it's probably time to get back to the things that we know, uh, then, you know, we can kind of return to base a little bit more, uh, so to speak in, in that case. Um, th- is that, is that getting at what you're asking? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm, I'm, you know, it's, uh, um, 
I'm hoping that you're gonna put all this new stuff in a in a, in a book or something because it, it's it's <laughs> it's really different than uh, than the book you published on two thousand yeah. was it two thousand seven two thousand eight yeah two thousand eight for sure it's it's very different it's a big big evolution from from yeah. that time so practically speaking then just out of curiosity right now how wh- wh- how much of a difference would you say that the training schedules or training programs of your athletes are from each other? I mean, are they relatively similar or just does each athlete, according to their needs and the the metrics that you follow, does that lead to very dissimilar programs or how how would you go on about that? You mean like the, like athlete A compared to athlete B? Yeah, yeah. They seem pretty different to me. Uh, I'm sure that if I think the further you get away from like uh, being steeped in powerlifting training, probably the more similar they're going to look. You know, it's like well, they all contain squat, bench, and deadlift, and and variations of those movements, and you know, not a whole lot else. <laughs> Uh, but you know when you get down to the nuts and bolts this person responds well to pause squats this person responds well to pin squats uh this person responds well to accentuated eccentric training and that other person doesn't uh varied intensities and and things like that uh, varied templates uh, some people seem to do really well on upper lower splits other people do better uh, with more frequent exposure some people need uh, to train the comp lifts, or no, I shouldn't say need, uh, they do best when they train their comp lifts, uh, in every training session. Other people only need it, you know, every other week. Um, so it, to me, that seems like a pretty big change, a pretty big difference, uh, in response. Um, at the same time, you know, everybody's. Yeah. Training. Perhaps compared to how you trained in the past before you started using the bottom-up approach so you'd say that the way your athletes train are very dissimilar to how you used to coach in the past perhaps yeah yeah and and i've also noticed that uh for for one given athlete so where this has led me to go is is kind of the development of different strategies uh you know and i've given different strategies different names you know and a lot of times they're goofy names that remind me of something about about that strategy um, but as you develop more of these strategies it's like they develop in in a lineage almost it, it, you can kind of draw a family tree you know that there's this one and then you know it gets tweaked a little bit and then it there's this other you know that becomes this other name strategy and then that gets tweaked a little bit more and you know so the, you, you can kind of make a family tree of them you know and i find that if you stay kind of too isolated in one part of the tree that you get more of a blunted response it's good to have diversity you know, in, in the training experience, you know, like if you are spending a lot of time in this one little area of the family tree, um, maybe take one of your exploring blocks and go to something completely different, you know, or or much further away than usual, uh, from what you would normally do. So an example of that, um, for the most part, I like to program, 
assistance exercises, Bondarchuk will call them uh, special developmental exercises uh, that target weak ranges of motion. Uh, so, for example, one of the most common things that we see in the squat is uh, like a chest fall pattern where the hips come up uh, out of sync with the barbell, you know. So some things that we like to do to fix that are things like pin squats and safety bar squats, high bar squats, front squats, and stuff like that. Um, but we tend to use that type of strategy a lot. Uh, so earlier this year, uh, it kind of <laughs> kind of became a thing because we're fortunate to work with a lot of high-level lifters that are kind of uh, prominent in the powerlifting sphere, you know. Uh, so we had a bunch of them doing uh, accentuated eccentric training, so like six-second negatives and things like that. Um, and it kind of became like, hey, what the heck? Why is everybody all of a sudden doing slow, slow eccentrics in their training, you know? And uh, a lot of them responded really well to it, um, but we get the sense that it's not anything really special about slow eccentrics. It's the novelty. It, we, we, we can't prove it yet. It just hasn't been enough time, but that's just kind of the feeling that all of us have at this point. It's like, eh, you know, that worked, but we just get this sense that it worked because it's a novel stimulus. Yeah, it's similar to Occam's razor. Like what's the, that's the simplest explanation for uh, the yeah. given effect. Uh, yeah. Are you familiar with uh, Dan John's idea on uh, bus bench and uh, park bench workouts? No. So I'll, I'll walk you through it uh, and, and, and uh, reader uh, listeners as well. So, Imagine sitting on a on a bench uh, on a bus stop and you're looking at the watch, you're looking at the timetables and the bus is late for like three minutes and now it's late for five minutes and it's 10 minutes and you're like becoming really, you know, nervous and, you know, waiting for a bus to come. Uh, and then imagine next day you're sitting on the same same uh, bench but in a park. So it's like, you know, one day the squirrel comes, one day the, you know, the pigeon comes from and eat from your arm or hand and you know you're just enjoying and you know enjoying the uh the view and you know just you know relaxing on the, on the best on the bench so he used a similar analogy in 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 training so sometimes all these programs we make they are like like a sitting on a bus bench you, you you know you have a certain percentage you need to hit you have a certain uh performance curve you are kind of expecting to follow uh you have certain, I would say, volumes you need to beat and, and so forth. And then you have this uh, uh, park, uh, park bench uh, idea where you kind of, you know, let the adaptation happen. You just go with the flow, do the stuff, do the minimum, I would say the minimal amount of work that's needed to push the, the needle forward. Where, where in, in, a, in a bus bench, you're trying to squeeze out as much juice you can. Like you are forcing the adaptation in quotation mark. Where in a in a, a park bench workouts you are you know you are letting the adaptation happen, so yeah. I'm trying to like your developmental cycle. Like listening to you, uh, it, it seems that's like a like using RPEs. It seems like to be a blend between these two extremes. Uh, but listening to Dan John, I would say like actually I'm, I'm paraphrasing him. So might be like 80% of time you are you are doing a, a park bench stuff and then like a peaking cycle like a pre-competition cycle will be 
trying to squeeze as much as uh, uh, possible. Like you, you have a timetable, uh, you have an adaptation to hit, you have a certain numbers to hit. So I'm just trying to figure out if this makes some sense to you and uh, like if you applied similar, I would say longer, uh, long, longer term planning with, with your athletes in terms of when you're, you need to be on your mark, when you need to hit certain you know, volumes and all this stuff to follow up with your performance curves and when you let things go you know, with the flow. Well, so in between each development cycle uh, are these kind of in-between cycles. Um, I've taken to calling them pivot blocks. Um, I know Derek has called them uh, rest cycles or washout cycles or um, I think there's even a couple other names for them as well. Um, so what I, it's funny cause like what's in a name, uh, when, when we called them rest cycles, uh, people took it to mean that the training was going to be restful and it's not, you know, so it's, it's, it's just very different. You know, it's not the same hard training that you get in a development cycle. It's not intended to, uh, like you said, move the needle forward, you know? Um, so, but it's, it's still work, you know? Uh, so rest was giving them, uh, uh kind of a, a false impression and then washout, uh, cycle. Some people took that to mean like a, like a failure at, like if you were to wash out of a program and it's not at all a failure. So we just started calling it a pivot and, and that seems to be doing the trick for us. Um, but, but anyway, that type of training, uh, comes between the development cycles. And I think it's, it's a very important period. Uh, and it, a rule of thumb that I've uh, a place to start is the pivot should be about one third the length of the the development cycle. So if the development cycle is six weeks, then the pivot will be for two weeks. You know, um, so that works out to be a significant portion of your training time that's spent in the pivot, uh, and I think it's really useful. It it's time where you can do things that are uh, like you're saying it a little bit less on the anxiety, right? Like it's, it's less serious. It's still work. It's still training and it's still useful, but it's, it's, it's not quite such a big deal. You know, it's not so critical, uh, feeling. And it, we do those, especially uh, a little bit longer, um, than normal after a competition. Um, you know, and, and you can do a lot of different things during those phases as well. Like, uh, uh, so we're powerlifters and we tend to, you know, like I said, focus our training on these very specific movement patterns. Well, there's a lot that gets neglected, you know, single leg work gets neglected a lot of times. Um, upper back work gets neglected a lot of times. Um, you know, there's lots of different things that, that don't get addressed energy systems. Uh, so the pivot becomes this nice training period where you can do those other things too. hopefully give the athlete a bit more longevity and give them some time to heal, you know, take the load off the spine a little bit and, and give these structures that have a, a much longer recovery phase, 
uh, a longer recovery time period, uh, give them a chance to heal up. Um, so, uh, you know, I've heard people, uh, you know, had conversations with Derek recently and, um, he was telling me that, you know, Bondarchuk has been telling him that, you know, the, the rest cycle is, you know, something that gets recommended, but it's not required. And, and I understand that, but, uh, I, at this point, I would keep it in there unless we really, really needed to not have it in there for some logistic reason. Um, and, and even then, you know, I, I think my athletes just do better when they, when they get a period of time to rest, you know? Yeah. What, what's the, like, what's the mindset during the developmental cycle? Like, let's say you prescribe, uh, say sets of five <clears throat> at eight RPE and you know do they um like what's the expectancy like do, do the athletes expect to move up every week and they get nervous if it doesn't and you know do they start cheating on the rp and you know how do you deal with 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 that stuff yeah I'm, like how do I'm how do sure you manage arousal happens. i would say how do you imagine manage arousal and you mentioned before that's one of the main issues when it comes to stress like rather than you know percentage yeah. of volume it's like a, how how mu- how much you you know slap yourself before a set <laughs> right right well it's in in a big we only tend to address it in the the big sense you know uh it's through conversations with athletes you know hey you I'd like to see you tone it down a little bit more in, in some of your training sessions. And it's more uh, like the bigger, more strategic conversations. That's where I try to manage that. Um, for me personally, I, if I've got a lifter that likes to get psyched up, I don't, I don't want to take that away from them in the middle of a development cycle or, you know, as we're getting closer to a competition or something like that. Uh, so it's, it's strategic because I feel like from a coaching standpoint, I can plan around that to a, to a pretty significant degree. If I've got a lifter that likes to psych up, then I know that about them and it will, it will come out in terms of how much stress can they recover from. You know, they won't be able to, to handle as much training stress as somebody who's a bit more calm and relaxed. And we can talk about those strategies uh, and they're probably going to be a bit more receptive to it if we're talking about, you know, how to improve recovery or something like that. Um, and, and I do the same thing with RPE. So you take a lifter who, you know, they're supposed to do a nine RPE and they accidentally do a 10 RPE. You know, I, my approach is, is pretty relaxed. You know, I, yeah, you know, we'll, next time maybe we'll take a little bit of weight off the bar, but I don't really chastise them about it or anything like that because my thought is well yeah they overshot the rpe this one time uh, but if they've learned something from that and they can gauge it more accurately in the future then you know that's that's still a win you know um so that's kind of how i like to approach it from a from a coaching standpoint you know as far as the mentality that they bring to it um yeah there is a little bit of pressure uh, to increase the weights uh, from from one microcycle to the next, but 
also we try to communicate with the athletes that hey there are a bunch of different response types you know uh not everybody's going to be a type one response and you won't even be a type one response in in every training block you know if you if you're typically a type one response which is just improves one week after the other you know even if that's typical for you that won't be every time you know so if you have a a week that's you know less than than it was the week before that's not the end of the world you know you adjust and come back from it the next week you know that's kind of how we how we address that and you'll see some other patterns too uh, that don't fall purely along those uh, uh, type one type two type three lines right so uh, let me back up for a second so a type one response is somebody who just improves from one week to another. They can add, you know, 2.5 kilos uh, each successive microcycle. A type two response has a dip in performance in the second microcycle and then sees a consistent improvement uh, in the third, fourth, fifth microcycles until the end, you know. Um, And then your type three response shows a static performance until the end where they may have a slight dip and then a peak. Uh, so those are the, the three responses that, that Bonnerchuk talks about. And, and I've seen those in, in powerlifting training as well. Uh, but you get some people who are kind of in the middle. Uh, so for example, I had an athlete uh, going to worlds this year who uh, she had uh, the fourth microcycle of every development cycle we did was a bad session and she peaked on the fifth microcycle. So that meant going to the, going to the world championship, we were like one or two weeks out. I can't remember how that worked out with her taper and whatnot, but um, one or two weeks out and she had a bad session, you know, so you're one or two weeks out from the world championship, you have a bad session that messes with a lot of athletes, you know, and, you know, she was concerned and, but I was able to, to go back and say, well, look for you, um, the fourth microcycle is always a down performance. And then you always come back on the fifth microcycle and, and there's your peak condition. And that look, that's going to be right on time for the world championship. And sure enough, she, she, uh, she won her weight class. So, um, I would say that that it worked out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so th- this brings me to uh, an- another, I would say, the, another question that that you started kind of exploring over the last few years, and uh, we, we don't want to expand this episode too long. So I'll, I'll try to r- kind of uh, wrap it up and finish it up. So you you started kind of exploring the idea of personality types, uh, especially mm-hmm. using a big five. So that's five. Uh, um, I would say five characteristical personality types, right. uh, and how that affects the like. Did did you see that certain personality types f- like follow or or are more more frequently observed in, in given performance curves? Like maybe uh, uh, someone with you know high on neuroticism is having a like a decline and then up, or like and like in terms of Training preferences, did you notice something that, say, um, let's say, uh, 
as someone who is high on openness prefer higher variability in training or maybe suffer from from a flat loading um and and things like that like what what's your what's your uh, take on this well we definitely saw some trends uh as far as uh, things that um certain personality components tend to to have certain preferences as far as training. So um, the investigation that we we gave a survey uh, to um, it in, in something like 600 powerlifters uh, and had them take a big five personality test, uh, which tests across five dimensions. Uh, it spells the acronym OCEAN. So you have openness to experience, uh, which is really just how much do you seek out those novel experiences, uh, conscientiousness, uh, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And neuroticism is interesting because it's uh, uh, how much negative emotion do you feel and how volatile are those emotions. So I'm, like I'm, high, on, <laughs> I'm <laughs> high on uh, neuroticism, 100 percentile. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. And high on openness, yeah. also 100 percentile. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That, wow, that's that's got to be a, a tough combination, right? Yeah, like, you you seek normal <laughs> stuff, but you're also afraid of the normal stuff. It. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's yeah. <laughs> brain fuck, <laughs> pretty yeah, much. I can so imagine, man. That, yeah. <laughs> well, it's so. What we did then is is we asked people to tell us about the training that's most effective for them. Um, which is maybe a bit of a stretch. Um, you know, there's there's going to be a lot of biases that come into play just by asking that question, but you got to start somewhere, right? Um, and the way I kind of think of it is, even though we ask them to tell us about what's most effective for them, you're still going to get preferences out of that, you know, for the most part, I think. Um, and so we took these 600 and some responses that we had and pared it down to only the most experienced and highest level lifters that that we could find. You know, and it was something like the 118 or so, uh, you know, top lifters who took our survey, which uh, I think the average was something like eight years training experience and, uh, uh, you know, a Wilkes score that was in the 400s, which is, you know, competitive at a national level. and. Uh, so it was quite a good group, I thought. And the assumption is that those people would know something about what works best for them, which, again, is maybe true, maybe not. But you got to start somewhere. So what we did is looked for training preferences among that group uh, based on personality. And we found we found some for sure. Uh, and we also found a lot of exceptions. So um, I think that we learned something from it, but I think we also uh, have to acknowledge that, you know, it's just a starting point. So one, one good example, uh, people who are low in openness and high in conscientiousness tend to prefer percent-based training, uh, which you can make sense of that. Like they tend to be low in openness, so they're, they don't seek out novel experiences. 
they're high in conscientiousness, which uh, typically they want things orderly. They want things to fit in nice certain categories and and not be chaotic and, and have things organized. So percent-based training falls right in the line with that, you know, where if you have somebody who's high in openness and, and lower in conscientiousness, you know, they're, they're okay with uh, RPE-based training and more open training progressions. Um, but there are plenty of exceptions to that rule as well. Like I tend to be a little bit low in openness. I'm in the, I think, 44th percentile or somewhere in there. Uh, and I'm really high in conscientiousness. Um, so by those numbers, I should prefer percent-based training, but I don't, you know, so there are definitely exceptions. Um, so that, that was something that, you know, I had to keep in mind as well. So what about, this is a, I would say one of the main questions, uh, is that does, does it mean that if I prefer certain training strategy, does it mean that it, it works best for me? Like, I will probably believe in it more. So, you know, I get this placebo effect or not really placebo, or I don't know how you call it, uh, just because I believe in it. But what's your experience? So, for example, I might say as an athlete, I prefer to have a high frequency, medium volume, medium intensity training. And I really suffer when I do like low frequency, high volume uh, training. And then you you actually see that's when it, when it comes to, you know, results it's actually the opposite like what's what's the experience there well good question and and i don't think we really know uh it for me at least for right now um i've i've only got the information from this one investigation this survey and you know so we asked about what's the most effective training and we're assuming that people who are, you know, very experienced and high level would know what is most effective for them. Um, so I guess it's all how much faith do you put in that assumption at this point in time? Um, I would certainly love to do uh, some more controlled interventions, I guess, uh, to, to start to test some of these ideas and see, you know, hey, uh, you know, extroverted people tend to prefer higher training volumes. You know, people who are low in extroversion can't handle high training volumes. You know, they're more easily overstimulated. You know, does that tend to bear out? You know, if we give everybody a, a high training volume uh, uh, program, do the extroverts do better than the introverts or vice versa? You know, I mean, uh, I don't know. Yeah, all uh, the interesting questions, but not right. easy. Not easy to make any causal uh, analysis. Well, I think it's like anything that's that's interesting. It, it's just it takes a bit more digging before you get to to something that's really useful. Um, now, what we have used that for so far is uh, when we are onboarding a, a new lifter. Um, we'll have them take a big five personality test and we'll use the results of that test to help guide our, our initial development cycle. You know, so if somebody shows up and they're, um, well, let's see, they're really high in, in neuroticism. We know that they would prefer a high RPE 
program, which is which is interesting. I, I didn't expect that, but uh, that was one of the surprising results. I think is that people high in neuroticism, so uh, they they experience more fear, stress, and anxiety. They also prefer higher RPE. I thought, well, higher RPE is going to cause more fear, stress, anxiety, and they would probably want to avoid that. Someone pointed out to me that high RPE training is less ambiguous. You know, it's more easy to know. Like if you train to a 10 RPE, you know it's a 10 RPE. You know, where if you're training at a 7 RPE, you start to second guess yourself. Was that a 6 or was that a 7? Was it a, maybe it was really an 8. I don't really know. So uh, maybe that's why people who are higher in neuroticism prefer higher RPE training on the average, you know. Um, but one way or another, that tends to be the preference. Uh, so maybe you start them out in that direction, you know, if, if you've got no other indication to tell you that that's a bad idea, you know, start them out in that direction and see if they do well with it, you know? Yeah. It might be a really interesting, uh, study to do, uh, or, or, or yeah. like observational or, or something. Uh, yeah, I wanted to, I, I wanted to wrap this one up with, with without becoming too long, like an uh, interview with Mike yeah. Zurdos for three hours. <laughs> I, <laughs> I still have a, a ton of questions to ask you. So maybe in, you know, maybe in the future we can, we can uh, come together again and continue the discussion. So yeah. uh, like, what, what's in the future for you? Like, do you, do you plan making an you know, update for the book or like, what's in the making? Yeah, so I, I've started to write a new book. Uh, that would include all this about uh, emerging strategies and and all that as well. Um, but man, so we had a, a, a our daughter was born in March, and then we moved to the Netherlands. Uh, so it's been it's been an interesting quarter. Um, but hopefully, I'll get back to writing, uh, and and we'll get that book finished. So that's coming up. Um, we're seems like doing seminars every month. Uh, it seems like we're, you know, teaching classes and coaching people and going to competitions. It seems like there's always something happening, <laughs> but, uh, uh, probably the book is, is going to be a big project. Um, I'll, I'll be really happy when that gets done because there's a lot that you know, like you, like you said, the first book is 10 years old now. There's a lot that needs to be refreshed and, and updated. Yeah, it's still one of my favorite books. Oh, thanks. It's come yes. to uh, Strength Training. So a- anyway, uh, I'll make sure that I'll, I'll make sure to post the uh, links to your website and your uh, Twitter account underneath or in the episode description. Uh, thanks, thanks a ton, Mike, for, for the opportunity to talk to you. And I'm really, really Thank looking you, Mike. forward. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. It's it great. I learned a lot. I didn't speak much because this is not my field, but it's uh, very interesting listening to you and your uh, insights. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's good to good to chat with you guys. And uh, yeah, absolutely. I hope we get to do it again soon.